Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by Paul Ung, a partner in Milbank's Singapore office and a member of the firm's Global Transportation and Space Group, where he leads the aviation and asset finance practice in Asia. Getting aircraft back into service is a challenge. So 2022 and 2023 will be challenging even if people wanted to travel for a large portion of the fleet to take to the skies. Let's get to it. Global aviation is recovering faster than expected from the pandemic for the last couple of years. It's not a surprise that two of the most popular podcast episodes from the first season of Law, Policy, and Markets dealt with international aviation. Drew Fine in New York in May of 2020 looked at the impact of the pandemic on airlines and aircraft finance and prospects for government bailouts. Shortly thereafter, we looked at the question of how do you pay for aircraft when people stop flying, with an international restructuring of NACDAC discussed with Jim Cameron and Kerry McMaster in London. Today, we're going to turn our focus on Asia. It's not surprising this is the most interesting topic for people these days, since the aviation industry supports over 65 million jobs around the world, which is almost $3 trillion, or about 3.5% of the world's gross domestic product. If aviation as a sector were a separate country, it would rank number 20 in size by GDP globally. Before the pandemic, the Asia-Pacific region was the engine for growth of global aviation. It's also the area of the world which has been the hardest hit by the pandemic and where the recovery in aviation has been the slowest to occur. Today, we're going to talk to Paul Ng in our Singapore office, an aviation leader. Paul, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time to get together. Thanks, Alan. Uh, Delighted to be here. So a couple of years ago when COVID hit and international air traffic just cratered, I mean, completely collapsed. I know I was working on some airport terminal work and all of those deals kind of came to a halt. You focus quite a bit on both aircraft lessors and airline work, especially in the Asia Pacific region. What happened in 2020 and where are we now? So back in 2020, I still remember giving an interview to the BBC about the rest of the year 2020, when uh, most of the airlines in the Asia Pacific were grounded and airspace closed. I had said that and That was true at the time that most airlines, airline business being a cash business, had maybe three to four months of cash reserve before they became technically insolvent. And the expectation then was that obviously people didn't know what was going to happen, but that by August, markets would reopen and air travel would resume. Of course, that did not happen. And what ensued was almost two and a half years of difficult times for for airlines as governments continued to restrict travel within their countries and causing the industry, especially in the Asia-Pacific, to face its greatest challenge in commercial aviation history. Never have airlines had a harder time than they did in the last two years. And arguably, 2021 was worse than 2020 because they didn't even have the first quarter to rely on. Yeah, it's interesting. I know back in, you know, 97, we had the Asian financial crisis. We had SARS after that. None of them have come close to both the depth and how long and sustained the current downturn has been. I was actually kind of stunned, though, by one positive note. You know, when, when this happened and one of the terminal financings I was working on, the prediction was it'll take about five years for things to come back to, quote, normal. So if normal is your 2019 air traffic levels, Global aviation has actually recovered more quickly than I think people expected, depending on the market. It's around 60 to 80% of pre-pandemic levels around most of the world, but averages are deceiving. 
Because in Asia, of course, especially with the lockdowns and air traffic restrictions in, in China and for international travel into Japan, uh, it's been much slower to recover. How do you think 2022 and 2023 will shape up for the Asia-Pacific airlines? That's interesting. Actually, the, the COVID pandemic has revealed, in a way, the bifurcation of the aviation market. Many parts of the world, in particular Europe and the US, have recovered much quicker and mostly due to the fact that those markets opened. And even, the, even when they were closed, they were not as draconian in their closure as in Asia. I would say the Asia-Pacific, in terms of the economics of the industry, has been a legard to many parts of the world. If you look at IATA's recovery report, the most recent one in June, they're expecting 2022 to host a industry loss of about $9.7 billion. I mean, th this is obviously a lot better than, say, 2020 and 2021, where the losses were over $100 billion. But if you look at the breakdown, North America is expected to make a profit, actually, of over $8 billion. Most of this $9.7 billion losses, 8.9 of that $9.7 billion losses are coming from Asia. And a lot of that is because Asia has probably been one of the last regions to open up to air travel, and air travel is the lifeblood of the industry. And even today, there are big gaps in the sense that the, the key economies for air travel, China, Japan, are still effectively closed. And even within China, the domestic travel has declined tremendously because of their zero COVID policy which they have implemented in a more draconian manner back in February with the entry of Omicron into their major cities. So uh, true headwinds still ahead and Asia-Pacific still, even this year, will, will face great challenges. Yeah, it's actually kind of interesting. I think IATA, which you mentioned before, I know Willie Walsh, the Director General of the International Air Transport Association, predicted that global aviation could come back to 2019 levels, pre-pandemic levels, as early as 2023, which kind of stunned me because, as I said, we were expecting it to take, you know, five, six, seven years, not as quickly. One reason a lot of the airlines you mentioned in, in North America or Europe are having fewer losses is, of course, that they've also, first, they got support from governments on a fairly large scale to preserve their capacity, but they've also increased their load factors by trimming the numbers of flights They've done other things to deal with rising costs of fuel and labor. Have airlines in the Asia-Pacific region been able to maneuver it as nimbly, and have they had as much government support? Yes. The reason why the industry in Asia-Pacific hasn't fared as well as in Europe and North America is exactly what you've said, which is the lack of government support. I mean, say for, for Singapore, where its shareholders, uh, DBS, Development Bank, is the largest bank in Singapore, and Tamasic have you know, poured billions uh, into the airline. And it's one of the few airlines in Asia that have not defaulted or asked for deferrals, but at a cost to the country, being such a flagship sort of brand for, for Singapore. Most airlines have not received any significant support from their governments. And that has resulted in some significant and high-profile insolvencies and restructuring. So take, for instance, just looking at Southeast Asia, Thai Airways, went into court-assisted restructuring early in, um, at the end of 2020. Philippine Airlines went into a pre-packed Chapter 11 last year. Even the most recent, which is Garuda, has been in PKPU, which is the equivalent of the Chapter 11, but uh, in Indonesia since December. 
So clearly, one of the reasons Southeast Asia has been sort of a leg out to the rest of the industry is, is this lack of government support on top of the fact that these the countries have had been in lockdown way longer than much of the rest of the world. Yeah. And of course, for airlines, a lot of their expenses are fuel, which is going up. A lot of their expenses are aircraft. We'll come back to that in a moment. Yeah. A lot of their expenses are airport fees, landing fees, and so forth, which, you know, there's been differences. I know in, in, in Thailand and Singapore, Korea, you know, the, the airports did a lot to help the airlines in other markets like India and New Zealand. You know, the, actually, the, some of those costs have gone up, which makes it harder on the airlines themselves. There's also this change, this mix between revenues from passenger operations and revenues from cargo. Yeah. I suspect cargo has been a bit of a lifeline, even when passenger volumes were down. How have airlines adapted to that shift in their mix of revenues? Yes. Uh, actually, cargo has been an interesting one for airlines in, in Southeast Asia. Obviously, without passengers flying on passenger aircraft, the belly space of the aircraft hasn't been used for cargo. And airlines have taken this opportunity to convert some of their older aircraft into cargo carriers. And cargo has seen a resurgence, although at the moment, because of supply chain issues, cargo is sort of flattening out at the moment. But I think pound for pound, at the moment, air freight is still a better option than even shipping, according to experts. It's been so popular that we have seen new entrants into the market. For example, there's a, the new joint venture, Juniper, between uh, Tamasic and STE, which is Singapore Technology Engineering, who have been one of the big MROs, uh, maintenance, repair, and overhaul facilities providers, starting their own freighter company. So, so a freighter leasing company, just leasing freighter aircraft. So yes, I think cargo will feature definitely more in the business plans of, of airlines in the Asia-Pacific going forward, subject to supply chain issues being sorted and the destabilization effect of the war in Ukraine not derailing that growth in cargo. Yeah, I suspect the war in Ukraine it probably had a bigger impact on fuel prices than it has to on air traffic. That's correct. Just a bit of background on fuel. So fuel typically is the number one cost component for any airline operating in the world. And fuel is a tough one because most airlines purchase fuel in the spot market. A fuel strategy for, for carriers are dependent on where they are based. And for the longest time, many airlines hedge their fuel prices because that's the largest cost component. But during the financial crisis back in 2008, many airlines were caught out because fuel prices soared. Much of their losses was as a result of having to pay the mark-to-market price, uh, so amounts that they had already incorrectly hedged that, and that, that cost many airlines in Southeast Asia and the Asia-Pacific to pay hundreds of millions of dollars. And that lesson has, has filtered down to today. So not many airlines hedge their fuel or they hedge only a portion of their fuel. And as a result, they are in the spot market and have to pay high fuel prices, which we have currently in order to operate their aircraft. Yeah, and of course, those things all come together, right? So if, if you haven't been hedging your fuel, if you're an airline which has been enjoying fairly stable, maybe even low, historically low fuel prices, if they suddenly spike, as they have done uh, in the last year, now's the wrong time to buy a hedge because it's going to cost you a whole lot more money. So you just have to ride the wave as long as you can. And of course, you're constrained on the ability to raise revenue in order to match those, those increasing costs. And of course, in terms of raising revenue, there is no shortage of liquidity in the market. It's the price at which, and with, with rising interest rates, airlines are faced with sort of a triple whammy, right? So 
high fuel prices, which they have not hedged, having to buy in the spot market, financing that they have to procure. The liquidity is there, but pricing is increasing rapidly. And then the third challenge is, of course, having to operate aircraft as markets open. Much, many of these aircraft have been parked. And the cost of putting these aircraft back into service, airworthiness service, requires capital as well. Add on to that, so labor issues of having already laid off a significant portion of their staff and having to rehire them, that hasn't been an easy path for any airline anywhere in the world. And many of the pilots have surprisingly found new, new careers as chefs and other things, hoteliers. And retraining a pilot takes you know, 38 months. So there are many headwinds. To be able to move nimbly and quickly, it's extremely difficult, especially in Southeast Asia. It's interesting. Even here in North America, you know, labor disruption have been one of the reasons why flights have been so delayed, why there's been challenges, cancellations, and so forth in the schedules. A lot of that is cabin crew. A lot of that is the pilots in the deck. And one of the longer-term issues is that some of the airlines that have been the most hard hit are not the big national carriers, the international carriers. It's been regional carriers who are the feeder grounds to train the pilots so they can get the hours on the commercial aircraft. And as a result, if if you're a big airline, if you're trying to to bulk up your flight schedule, it's almost impossible in some markets to be able to find qualified, trained cabin crew to fill the need. And and that, of course, limits their ability to build up the economies or rebuild the economies of scale that are needed to cover those costs of, of fuel and aircraft and other things that we talked about. Absolutely, yes. And just to mention a little bit about labor. So there's obviously the staff that you need to operate the aircraft. And that Quite a number of them were laid off because of the extended period of the pandemic and to having to rehire or having to find new staff to replace them. In, whereas as more and more of your aircraft goes into service, there's a separate labor issue which relates to putting this aircraft into, into service. Many of the MROs, the maintenance, repair and overhaul facilities are overworked on top of the fact that they have supply chain issues of getting spares. They themselves during the pandemic, have laid off staff. And they also have to hire their engineers and the technicians and the contractors. So getting aircraft back into service is a challenge, not only operating them. So 2022 and 2023 will be challenging even if people wanted to travel for a large portion of the fleet to take to the skies. Yeah. Interesting, you know, airplanes actually don't cost that much. What costs a lot is maintaining them, especially if you have to use the OEM parts or the OEM contracts and so forth. How have the aircraft manufacturers and the companies that lease aircraft, they buy them from manufacturers and lease them to airlines, how have they fared and how are they doing now, given how long it's taken or is taking for the market to recover? That's an interesting question. I, I, I will just take the manufacturers first. Manufacturers are optimists, I, I, I think. If you read the Boeing or the Airbus annual report, they forecast an unlimited and continuous growth in the aviation industry every year, even during the pandemic, or maybe during the pandemic. But their, their forecast is, so long-term forecast is unchanged that aviation will continue to outpace GDP growth of the world. And the Asia-Pacific will be the largest market in the world in terms of new aircraft deliveries. And China will be the largest single country for taking deliveries of aircraft in the next 20 years. So so they are extremely positive for Asia-Pacific, where more aircraft will occur. Boeing has succeeded on top of at the beginning of the pandemic, raising several billion dollars in the capital markets 
have also now got their MAX, the 737 MAX aircraft, which was grounded across the world due to the two accidents. Many countries, including in Asia, have now given the clear for that aircraft to be airworthy. And that's a great boost to them because they had sold many 737 MAX aircraft in this part of the world. Just, just to show the buoyancy of and the, the optimism, Airbus announced a huge order in China. I think all three of the national carriers, China Airlines, China Eastern, and China Southern, have ordered almost triple figures of new Airbus NEO aircraft. Although these aircraft will only be delivered later, 2024 to 2026, Clearly, they, they view that this market will return and return in a big way. That's probably the story for, for manufacturers. They're optimistic and they, they think the market will expand, return back to 2019 levels quicker than possibly others. So is it safe to say that the optimism that manufacturers have about future demand and about future orders in the order book is a case of it's still growing. It's still a curve that rises very sharply up to the right, but the whole curve itself has shifted to the right. There's a sort of a hiatus, a period, which hopefully will be shorter than people might have feared a few years ago, dur during which the demand will recover. Uh, that, that's correct. I, I mean, th their view has always been that the fundamentals in Asia, growing GDPs, growing middle income class, and the fact that there is generally still a lower penetration of aircraft to population will drive increase in aircraft acquisitions and usage over the long term. Right. So generally, globally, about half the aircraft flying around the world are owned by the airlines. Almost the other, almost all of the other half are actually owned by leasing companies. And how are lessors faring? So I, I would say aircraft lessors and the financiers to aircraft lessors have been extremely patient with carriers in Southeast Asia. And in a reality, if you look at the number of insolvencies in Asia-Pacific on the whole, they have been quite limited. And even for the airlines that I previously mentioned in terms of which are going to restructuring the national carriers, they have uh, received great cooperation from aircraft lessors. You're right, the aircraft lessors have been sort of a, a rock on which many of the carriers in Asia-Pacific have had to rely on. Obviously, at some stage, these aircraft lessors will have to be repaid for their patients but they have been very cooperative in assisting in rent deferrals. And many of the new entrants, especially the ones that are supported by private equity, have also sort of invested even more deeply in their customers. Just take, for example, AirAsia, largest low-cost carrier in Asia. They are two of their largest lessors. Continue to support them with capital as well, including Lion Air, largest low-cost carrier in Indonesia. So going forward, they will definitely be an even bigger player in the aviation market because they have invested actually in their customers over the COVID period more. Yeah, that's actually interesting. I suspect the fact that lessors could have that sort of flexibility and provide that cushion really enhances the value of aircraft leasing because capital markets or you know bank lenders may not always be able to do that. And you know, if there's a future crisis, that's probably of some comfort to airlines. I'm mindful of the old statement that if I borrow $100 from the bank and I don't pay them back, I've got a problem. If I borrow $100 billion from the bank and I don't pay them back, they've got a problem. <laughs> so I suspect that patience is sort of something they can afford to do, but something they also kind of have to do. I'm not sure what the plan B would be otherwise. 
that's correct. Lessos are now even arguably even more intertwined with some of their customers in the Asia Pacific. Just, just to mention, there are two categories of lessors in, in the Asia Pacific region. There are the international lessors, many of them based in the US and in Dublin. And then there are the domestic, uh, not domestic, but there are there are lessors that are based in Asia. And most of them are the big banks in China had set up leasing arms back in the 2000s, and they were they expanded rapidly from 2010 onwards. What we have seen is less of their participation in the Asia-Pacific region and having sort of withdrawn more to the Chinese domestic market to support the carriers in China. I think that there's some nationalism in that, but we are hoping that with airlines starting to show some cash flow, that uh, they will return back into the market and provide an alternative source of aircraft and funds to the airlines. And we're already seeing some of that happening, which was absent during COVID. And generally speaking, who stands behind the lessors? Is it private equity? Is it sovereign wealth funds? Is it investors through debt securities in the capital markets? The, the lessors based in Asia, uh, ma- many of them, their funders are deep-pocketed national banks, the ones in China in particular. There are some that are backed by large insurance companies like Everbright, the, the big Chinese insurance companies. But typically in Asia, there have been mostly sort of big banks and insurance companies. Internationally, that's uh, more varied than we, we have seen very successful private equity lessors, and then some sort of lessors that have been sort of traditionally metal players, meaning players in this market for over you know, two decades, people like Aircap, where their aircraft went to in terms of other lessors. So it's a mixture, but in Asia, mostly banks and insurance companies and internationally is more mixed. So let's take out your crystal ball for a second, polish it up, and uh, I want to give you three factors, and you tell me which of these you think is the most important for how the financing of aircraft and airline operations will unfold over the next couple of years. Just to, just the next 24 months. We don't have to look way in the future. Number one would be inflation. Number two would be rising interest rates, in part because of inflation and trying to contain that. And of course, there's differences between Asia, the North America, and Europe as far as how that's playing out already. And number three would be geopolitical concerns. And I will throw into that also then responses to COVID and and lockdowns and things and how that might loosen up. But you can expand it if you like to include, you mentioned before the, the, the war in Ukraine, there may be other factors as well that could be surprises. There's the, you know, sometimes the tensions between the United States and China, how that might play out, which certainly would affect the broader Asia Pacific region. Which of those three factors do you think matters most? I think you've chosen three important factors <laughs> for um, for the success of the aviation business. I, I would think that at the moment, for Asia Pacific anyway, probably inflation and geopolitics. <laughs> and inflation would be obviously the, the, the tools that the airlines need, fuel, cost of operating aircraft, labor costs. If those inflate beyond their ability to recover through ticket receipts, then they would struggle to stay solvent. They would need to really match their cost of funds with the cost of delivering the service. And this balance is is a difficult one when you have high fuel prices, high interest rates, and then high labor costs. That's going to be challenging. Geopolitics, you're right. I mean, China, let's just look at the, the passenger profile today in 2022. I mean, in the past, you had business travelers and, and discretionary travel, people traveling for holidays to, to see families. In 2022, 
a large portion of that has shifted just to discretionary travel, much less business travel at the moment because people are using alternative means to communicate for business. And that matters quite a bit, right? Because if people are sitting in the back of the plane, the cost per plane to passenger may be lower to some extent because they're not taking up as much space, they're not eating as much fancy food, they're not using a you know, VIP lounge. By the same token, if you're sitting in the front of the plane, if you're a first class, if you're a business traveler, yeah, the cost per plane passenger goes up, but the revenue goes up considerably because they could be paying a factor of, you know, 10 for their, their ticket. I think right now, actually, the difference between average cost per kilometer for a coach or economy passenger versus a business or first class passenger is actually not that wide a spread, precisely because the business traveler is not yet returned. Correct. And how that leads to your question about geopolitics is that Asia Pacific relies a lot on Chinese travelers, just like uh, Japanese tourists uh, back in the 80s. And the Chinese customer is unable to leave China uh, without so extensive periods of quarantine coming back. And many of the countries that have relied on Chinese tourists, and not just coming, from, coming to their countries like Thailand, Vietnam, but also being able to deliver passengers into China has been greatly restricted. So if geopolitics results in continued restriction to travel into China and also a more, a more limited extent Japan, that will have a great impact on many airlines that have relied on that traffic, especially low-cost carriers, the likes of AirAsia, the likes of the airlines based in open sky countries, so, so countries which can fly freely between uh, their country and China, like in Thailand, Vietnam. These airlines will be deeply impacted if the restrictions on travel into China continue into 2023. So international aviation remains a pretty fragmented business. I mean, there's a lot of different carriers. You know, given that it's a business which is, as you mentioned, it's a cash business, right? You don't have long-term contracts for revenues. You have to hope the passengers buy tickets and hope that they show up and or the people book cargo and actually the boxes appear on the plane. And by the same token, you mentioned, you know, a lot of the cost is highly variable. Fuel costs, uh, how many planes you're going to fly can, can vary quite a bit depending on your loads. So given that it's a fairly low margin and volatile business, you've got to make up your money on leverage. And if you're making up your money on leverage, you're very exposed, of course, to financial markets and interest rates and currencies. Do you think that there will be more consolidation in the long run? Or do you think that countries will still try to have their flag carrier, even if they're not economically maybe justified in doing so? That's a very, a very good question, Lynn. And actually, that was asked right at the beginning of, of COVID in 2020 on one of your earlier programs. And people were certain that consolidation would happen. Frankly, in the Asia-Pacific, that has not happened. The closest we have had to consolidation is between Asiana and Korean airlines. And that itself is merged into uh, anti-competition, regulatory issues. I mean, there, there are three, three reasons why consolidation is difficult in aviation in the Asia-Pacific region. One is regulation, is that many of the airlines have nationality requirements, meaning that in order to maintain your AOC, which is your air operator certificate, you need to show that nationals, not just corporates, own sufficient portion of the, the shares of the company in order for it to be able to have that uh, air operator certificate. That, that has been challenging when, when capital is coming from overseas. That's, that's one reason. The second is that consolidation is rare in, in Asia. So if you look back at the industry, maybe for the last 30 years, barely, you'll be barely able to find any 
consolidation that is not mutually agreeable. I mean, there have been some consolidation in China, for example, mostly directed by the government. It is rare in, in the aviation industry generally. And, and thirdly, is that mostly if, if an airline fails, they don't actually see consolidation as a, as a solution to their continued survival. It would just fail and uh, go into insolvency or insolvency-assisted restructuring and find new investors. It's just very difficult to integrate airlines in Asia Pacific. I think the last one that we were involved in was Malaysian Airlines and Air Asia. And again, that was a government-directed consolidation, which failed. They then disassociated again, and each company was was hit with a a lawsuit by the country's antitrust uh, organization for anti-competitive behavior. So it's it's, it's just extremely difficult in in Asia-Pacific. So obviously, living through a pandemic, living through economic dislocations, it's very hard to be positive in a lot of discussions around airlines and aircrafts and aviation. However, I I suspect there are tailwinds. I suspect there are some bright spots uh, on the horizon. What do you see as the best reasons for optimism in this area? Some good things that have come out of COVID in Asia, you know, the Asia-Pacific region, is there's actually more cooperation between countries at the moment to open their skies to passengers from, from their countries to other countries. And, and there's great speed at which digitization has occurred because obviously, you know, we've talked about before the vaccination passport. Many countries have been able to integrate their immigration systems to allow travel that was more seamless as a result of of the challenges of COVID, having to put restrictions up and now take the restrictions down. That's one one positive. Also, as I mentioned, the manufacturers are extremely positive and buoyant and have actually increased the number of aircraft deliveries over the last year or so. And that is usually a sign of the start of hopefully increase in uh, traffic because there are more new aircraft coming in and therefore more passenger growth. You mentioned that there's, you know, the manufacturers are optimistic and there's more aircraft now that are being purchased. I suspect there's a number of reasons for that, right? One, you've had this kind of cleaning out period where you could get rid of your old planes because no one was flying anyway the last year. So now you, you modernized your fleet. Second, fuel costs as a percentage of total costs are going up. And so there's a lot of reason to have newer, more fuel-efficient aircraft. Absolutely. And then lastly, of course, I suspect that the financing terms, you're, you're more creditworthy and able to do that if you've just gone through a restructuring or some other kind of a process where you've kind of right-sized your balance sheet so that you're able to afford those new aircraft. That's absolutely right. And with newer aircraft, we are expecting our passengers to feel more confident and more, more excited to, to travel again. And then we, we are seeing some green shoots occur on the, so in a way, the carcass of older carriers. For instance, in 2019, the largest, at one time, the largest air, uh, carrier in India, Jet Airways, was insolvency court and the court had already uh, confirmed the order. And uh, we, we are seeing that the, the airline is now being taken over by new management and that they are in the market to build a new Jet Airways and have entered into contracts with lessors and manufacturers or in the process of doing that to sort of resurrect this carrier. So it is not all demise. There are some, some new phoenixes arising from the ashes of, of old carriers as well. That's good news. That's good to hear. Well, Paul, thank you very much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. Delighted. 
Thanks, Alan. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Milbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at milbank.com.